In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Come, Holy Spirit, fill the hearts of your faithful, and kindle in them the fire of your love. Send forth your Spirit, and they shall be created, and you shall renew the face of the earth. O God, who by the light of the Holy Spirit did instruct the hearts of the faithful, grant that by the same Holy Spirit we may be truly wise and ever enjoy his consolations through Christ our Lord. Amen. A reading from the Holy Gospel according to St. Matthew. Jesus said to the chief priests and the elders of the people, Listen to another parable. There was a man, a landowner, who planted a vineyard. He fenced it round, dug a wine-press in it, and built a tower. Then he leased it to tenants and went abroad. When vintage time drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to collect his produce. But the tenants seized his servants, thrashed one, killed another, and stoned a third. Next he sent more servants, this time a larger number, and they dealt with them in the same way. Finally he sent his son to them. They will respect my son, he said. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to each other, This is the heir. Come on, let us kill him and take over his inheritance. So they seized him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Now when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? They answered, He will bring those wretches to a wretched end and lease the vineyard to other tenants who will deliver the produce to him when the season arrives. Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures? It was the stone rejected by the builders that became the keystone. This was the Lord's doing and is wonderful to see. I tell you then that the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a people who will produce its fruit. So we have here quite a parable, something a bit, a bit hard to lessen perhaps. Even though we can tell ourselves, well, Jesus is speaking to the chief priests and the elders of the, of the people, of the Jews. And so it's about Israel and the Jewish people rejecting Jesus, and it has nothing to do with me. But we'll see differently, as you will see. But it is true that this parable is addressed to a very specific set of people. It's not addressed to the whole of Israel. It's not addressed to the disciples. It's addressed in Jerusalem, in the temple, to those people who came to put Jesus to the test. And it's during the last week of his life. So Jesus has arrived in Jerusalem for, the, for, the, for his passion to be delivered. He has entered Jerusalem solemnly on Palm Sunday. He has been greeted as the king who is to come, the son of David. He has gone into the temple to cleanse the temple. And this is the next day, and we know that the chief priests and the elders have come to sort of interrogate him. And he's answering with a couple of parables. And the first parable was the parable of the two sons, which we saw last week, and now the parable of the tenants, which makes things a little worse for them. 
And so we can be reminded that this whole discussion begins in Matthew 21, 23. When he entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came up to him as he was teaching and said, by what authority are you doing these things and who gave you this authority? So they, they want to demand an account. In other words, they're coming in saying, we have the authority here over the people. We are the teachers. They listen to us. Who are you? What are you doing? And so you have this whole confrontation. And it finishes right at the end of this parable. Here is a bit that is not given in the liturgy on Sunday, but this is important to understand that the chief priests and the, and the elders understand the parable very, very well. And this is what it says in Matthew 21, 43 to 46. That's the conclusion of the parable. I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a nation producing the fruit of it. And he who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, but when he falls on anyone, it will crush him. So that stone which the builders rejected is a stone of contradiction. It's a stone that, that makes or breaks. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. But when they tried to arrest him, they feared the multitudes because they held him to be a prophet. So we have the heart of this confrontation. They understand that he's talking about them and referring to them as the wicked tenants from whom the vineyard will be taken away. Now, in the literal sense, how do we understand that vineyard? We understand it as a parable that recounts the whole of the history of Israel, the history of salvation, the history of God choosing, electing the people of Israel planting it as its vineyard and and wanting coming in to, to, to reap, to, to get the produce, but of course being rejected in the sun in Jesus. So it's a parable that is meant to be a call to repentance, really. But as we know, it doesn't really work. And all of this is part of God's providential plan to extend that salvation. So the stone which the builders rejected, the builders who should have built on Jesus, this stone becomes now the cornerstone of the, the, the new nation or the universal salvation, which is not just for Israel now, but for the whole world. So it, it is all part of God's providential plan, but it comes through that rejection. So we see Jesus saying, the stone rejected by the builders became the keystone. I tell you then that the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a people who will produce its fruits. So we see that the vineyard is essentially Israel, really, in the terms in which it is set out, the way that the chief priest and the elders understand it to be. And we have these references to Israel in the Old Testament where it's very clear that Israel is compared to a vineyard. We have it in the Song of Songs, where it is, it's a beautiful love song in chapter 7, 10 to 13, and in chapter 8, 11 to 12. Come, my beloved, let us go forth into the fields and lodge in the villages. Let us go out early to the vineyards and see whether the vines have budded. So the vineyard is the place of love, the place 
of election, the place of God's choice, the place where he wants to meet his people and, and love them. The Song of Song in, in uh, 8, 11, 12, Solomon had a vineyard at Baal Hammon. He entrusted the vineyard to keepers. Each one was to bring forth its fruit a thousand, for its fruit a thousand pieces of silver, which is enormous. My vineyard, my very own, is for myself. You, O Solomon, may have the thousand and the keepers of the fruit two hundred. So that's already a little hint as to what the tenants were meant to do and be. And Solomon prefiguring God, Jesus, and the keepers prefiguring the tenants. And that was the original plan, which is a plan of love, a plan of reciprocity, a plan of cooperation, a plan where everyone has its place and everything works together for this beautiful vineyard to flourish. In Isaiah 5, which will be the first reading on Sunday, we have the song of the vineyard. And, and it's literally the heart of uh, all the, the references of Israel as the vineyard, because they are more than what I've given you here. But the this vineyard, which is, again, chosen, which is deliberately... Um, worked on, set out. So my beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones. He planted it with choice vines. So it's the work of God. It's it's really the, the work and the choice of God. And all of this he has done. And then the vineyard doesn't produce the fruits. But in verse 7 of Isaiah 5, it's very clear. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts... He's the house of Israel and the people of Judah are his pleasant planting. So there can be no mistake when Jesus talks about the vineyard, we know it's Israel. And, and the keepers, the tenants are those who are responsible to give, to produce the fruit, to, to give the word of God, to teach the word of God. And they would self-identify as the elders and the chief priests as we see it works. So Jesus is very clear in this parable. Now, if we go back to the vineyard, we see that the, the landowner who has gone away is sending his servants to, to reap the, the produce of the vineyard. The servants, if we look at the whole Israel of Israel, so Israel being the vineyard, the servants are, have been understood classically and certainly by the prophets, uh, by the uh, fathers of the church to be the prophets of Israel preaching the word of God. Now, this is the great paradox that Jesus begins his parable by saying, listen to another parable. And precisely what is reproached to Israel is not to have listened to God. And listen, of course, here or Israel, it's at the heart of the, of the mission and identity and the election of Israel. Israel is the one that has received and heard the word of God, and that's what sets Israel apart from all the other nations. So when Jesus begins by saying, listen to another parable, and the parable is about the tenants unable to listen to the servants, unable to obey, because to listen and to obey is really the same reality. So when the servants are sent by the landowner, to, they, they, they say to the tenants, give us the fruit, and the tenants refuse to lessen. And then when the son is sent, 
not only do they refuse to listen, but like the, that, like the other servants, they kill the son. So there is a rejection of the word of God. There's a rejection, not just of the message, but there's a rejection of the fundamental truth which words are meant to communicate. And the fundamental truth is that the vineyard is not theirs. The vineyard is the Lord's. There's a rejection of reality, which is, ex and, and so the only way to make this, to change reality to their advantage is to kill those who prevent them from, but it doesn't change ultimately the fact that the vineyard is the Lord's and he will come back and bring justice. So they can kill the servants, they can kill the son. But this idea that they will become heirs is weird. They're not in the real. They're not acknowledging that they're only tenants, that they're not owners, that they haven't made the vineyard. And that's a very important thing. They're refusing the word of God, not just as a message coming from outside, but as a, a, a simple acknowledgement and acceptance of the reality in which they are so if we if we understand of course the landowner uh, to be to be god so that rejection of the word of god which is really manifested in that parable in every possible way when the parable begins by lesson is great irony so that's on the part of jesus who is remember the word incarnate and who is speaking to them right them and they're rejecting him right there and seeking to kill him after the after the as we saw right after he said this parable so the parable is 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 acting as a prophecy as well now the prophets in what way have the prophets be rejected because the the prophets the writing of the prophets are by then, by the time of Jesus, part of the canon of Scripture acknowledged by the Jews, the Hebrew Bible. They, so they, they acknowledge that the prophets, the writing of the prophets are sacred. And yet they have been rejected. And we have evidence of that in the Old Testament. We have it especially in, um, in Jeremiah. Jeremiah is, is the poster boy of prophets if you want but all of the prophets have had some hard times and you can see that in in their writings uh, they are misunderstood that's the most positive or they are completely rejected and even killed now uh, jeremiah has this constant problem that no one listens to him and and everybody rejects him constantly and uh, but he, he also tells us, tells them, you know, that they are disobedience. They did not obey or incline their ear, but walked in their own counsels and the stubbornness of their evil hearts and went backward and not forward. From the day that your fathers came out of the land of Egypt to this day, I have persistently sent all my servants, the prophets, to them day after day. Yet they did not listen to me or incline their ear, but stiffened their neck. They did worse than their fathers. That Jeremiah 7, 24 to 26. Um, so he's not mincing his words. And then later on, Jeremiah 25, 3 to 7. Turn now every one of you from his this evil way and wrongdoings and dwell upon the land which the Lord has given to you and your fathers from old and forever. And yet you have not listened to me. And of course, 
what's the worst will then happen to Jeremiah because he, he keeps telling people they're not listening to God, so they get fed up. So in Jeremiah 22, Pashur beat Jeremiah the prophet. Now, Pashur was in charge of the temple. It was not some foreigner. He was right at the heart of things. He was in charge of the temple. So, you know, acting in the name of religion. He beat Jeremiah the prophet and put him in the stocks that were in the upper Benjamin gate of the house of the Lord. That's the first beating. And then Jeremiah 37, 15. And the princes were enraged at Jeremiah and they beat him and imprisoned him in the house of Jonathan, the secretary, for it had been made a prison. All this in the background of the destruction, the, the siege of Jerusalem, its destruction, the sending into exile, the, the flee into Egypt, all of this drama. And they still home in on the prophets who had predicted everything and can't cope with them. In 2 Chronicles 24, we have the account of the death of Zechariah at the hand of the king, again, and in the temple. So it's at verse 20, I'm going to start, so 2 Chronicles 24, 20, Then the Spirit of God took possession of Zechariah, the son of Jehoiada, the priest, and he stood above the people and said to them, Thus, this, thus says God, Why do you transgress the commandments of the Lord so that you cannot prosper? Because you have forsaken the Lord, he has forsaken you. But they conspired against him, and by command of the king, they stoned him with stones in the court of the house of the Lord. So that's what they did to the prophet. And then they take the, the writings of Zechariah and they honor it as sacred writing, which is, again, a manifestation that there's something really divine in this, because if you do that to someone, you don't usually enshrine him after that. But anyway, so and then in Luke 13, 34, Jesus himself talks about this reality of Israel's rejection of the word of God through the prophets. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, killing the prophets and stoning those who are sent to you. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you would not. And we, we feel all the heart, the breaking longing of Jesus to have his people listen to him. And now this, if you want, is the story of Israel until he comes and he suffers himself the same rejection. And yet we understand this whole narrative of God choosing, electing Israel and sending prophets and then finally sending his son and the son being as rejected as the prophet and killed outside of the vineyard as, as Jesus was killed outside of the city walls. We understand this, this story, which is a story of utter failure to be a story of salvation, because this is how God offers his salvation and offers his salvation of course not just to the but not just to the good ones but to everyone to those who reject him he offers his salvation to those who are putting him to death that's yes israel that's us everyone that's the way that god saves us is through a story of utter failure and death that's how he gives us life so that's this wonderful paradox at the heart of our faith, where a story of salvation is actually a story of destruction to some extent. But this is from life rising out of death in Jesus. So we, we have this wonderful news that nothing that we can do 
by way of destruction will prevent God from bringing about his salvation. However, the one thing he asks of us is to lessen, is to lessen. And there is a judgment for those who reject him again and again, to the end. You know, the, the, he will bring those wretches to a wretched end. Now, that judgment is not an arbitrary judgment on the part of God. The judgment of the tenants is not something that Jesus himself talks about. He asks the question to the elders and the chief priests, uh, and he asks them, now, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? They answered, so that's not Jesus. He will bring those wretches to a wretched hand. They themselves, who are at the time of Jesus speaking, doing exactly what Jesus is describing, which is to reject the word of God and wanting to kill the son. They themselves issue their own judgment insofar as what they say is in total logic with the story the judgment fits the reality of the action of rejecting the landowner he will bring those wretches to a wretched end and is the vineyard to other tenants justice if you want comes from reality comes from truth it's inherent in it so they understand it themselves. It doesn't sound arbitrary to them. This is just right and just. So how can we understand this parable in another way? Because, of course, we, we understand it has to do with Israel and it has to do with the history of salvation. It has to do with Passion Week. When Jesus is speaking, this is actually what is happening there. The son has finally arrived and the son is here to gather his inheritance and to gather the produce of the fruit, and the son is going to be uh, killed out of jealousy. This is the air, come, let us, you know, and so that we can keep this for ourselves, keep things as they are. And it really matches what is about to be experienced during the passion of Jesus in a, in a few days. And yet this parable has got something to tell us as well more widely about salvation and, and sin, about the action of God. So let's, let's look at this from a different angle. So how does God show himself to be in this parable? We can understand, of course, the vineyard to be Israel, but we can also understand the vineyard to be the whole of creation, something God has, if you want, worked on, decided desired, that is other than himself, that he has set out to make, and that it is beautiful to see. God is the creator and owner of everything that is. Everything that is, is utterly dependent on him. And not just because he begins the process of creation at some point in time and gets the ball rolling and now we're all autonomous from his created power. Everything that is receives its being from God continually, as it were. Time itself receives its reality from God. Everything that is, that exists, that is not God, is because God is and gives it being. Now, there would be nothing if God did not create now. So God is, if you want, the landowner or the owner in, in the most absolute way as being the creator. 
He's the one who plants the vine, the vineyard. He's the one who set out everything. Who are the keepers? Who are the tenants? Of course, they, they can be understood to be humanity insofar as with, with Genesis, we have a very clear image of what God intends for humanity to be doing for the visible creation that he has created, which is to, to till it, to keep it, to be a steward of it. And this is the command that he gives right at the beginning in Genesis 1, 26, 31. So he, he gives man the power to be a tenant, to be a keeper, by making him in his own image and likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every other creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. And all these lovely, beautiful things that are living are not in the image and likeness of God, insofar as, unlike us, they're not able to know and to choose to will to love, if you want. This power for truth and this power for choice, for love, to choose the good, which belongs to us, is an image of the power of God who knows and loves absolutely. And in knowing and loving, you know, we see his creation manifested as a knowing and a loving of God who decides something out of love and makes it beautiful and ordered. And now he gives us the same power so that we can be tenants because we have that capacity to know and to love to choose. We have the capacity to receive his word and to obey his word, to hear and understand the truth and to respond to the truth in love. And that's unique to us, but also invisible creation. But it's also a capacity he has given invisible beings. Yesterday we celebrated the, the feast of the archangels, Michael, Raphael and Gabriel. And the angels are also creatures who are capable of truth and love, of knowing and loving. And so for us as well as from them, there is a, a sort of a, a tenancy part of cooperating with God in looking after creation, in, in bringing about his design, in producing fruit, the fruit of the vineyard. Now, in, in this hearing, being able to produce hearing, this is our greatness. But our greatness is contingent on God. We only are great because we receive these amazing capacities from Him. We are great because we receive everything that is created from Him. We are great because we receive our own being from Him. We are great because we receive the truth that we know and the love that we respond to from him. So if we are capable of truth and love, it's not because we initiate truth and love, it's because we receive them and respond to them like tenants. And the problem is then that when humanity or the angels, for example, decide to sin, there is a refusal of reality as it is. And it comes at the heart it's, it breaks down creation, as it were. Not that it can, because God is creator, and it, you know. But it, it, it's, a, it's a process. Sin becomes a process of self-destruction, of shooting yourself in the foot, 
of saying of, of as a tenant deciding well i'm not going to be a tenant i'm going to be the landowner and so cutting myself off from the very source of my life the very source of the truth that i receive the very source of the love that i live from and deciding well i'm going to be the heir i'm going to set myself up and it is so utterly irrational that we can't actually make sense of it. That's why we talk of the problem of evil, because it doesn't make sense. It just doesn't make sense. And that's precisely what we see in that parable. Those tenants are brainless. They might have some cunning. They might be using their intelligence to find the most uh, wretched way, the most cruel way of killing the prophets and then of killing the son. They might use their cunning in trying to decide how to, you know, be in control for a little while over some imaginary possession because it's never theirs. But ultimately their reasoning of saying, this is the heir, come on, let us kill him and take over his inheritance, is utterly stupid. As if they could, they're only tenants, they're not sons. And sin is precisely the, crea the creature wanting to be like God, which is exactly the temptation that we have in Genesis. If you eat that fruit, you will be like God, knowing good and evil, which is what the serpent says in Genesis 3, 4. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. But you will be like God without God. But they're already in the image and likeness of God. They're already like God in every possible way that they can without being God, which they can't because they're creatures. And by eating the fruit and so disobeying, and so stepping outside of their role, of their, even of their, as it were, of their nature as tenants, of their function, but much more than that, of their, of their identity, they destroy themselves. They bring about death to themselves, not to God, to themselves. That's what sin does. When we step out of the order which God has established, when we refuse the reality of God given to us and want to make it our own and transform it and, and then then we destroy ourselves. And that's what the tenants have done. Those wretches will come to a wretched end. It's written into the story. It's inevitable. That's that's if you want a, a way to, to understand sin. However, this is also the way in which God saves us. So there is great hope because the owner, so we, we see this brainless tenants and the owner looks really naive. God, um, if it's, you know, if it, it's like, well, why does God keep sending those people if they're going to be rejected? Why does God send his son if he's to be rejected like that? And in the story, that's why, that's where we don't really see that. But we know that God sends his son knowing exactly what we're like. 
because it is through the sin that is committed against the Son that every sinner commits against the Son, because we're all responsible through our sin for the death of Jesus. It is through that sin that God brings about life through the resurrection of Jesus and forgiveness and redemption. And not only that, but it is through the Son being rejected and, and put to death that life become, eternal life becomes a possibility for everyone, tenants included, should they begin to listen to God. The condition is really to start listening, to start accepting, accepting what the Word of God, the Word made flesh. And we see that in writing very clearly in the prologue of St. John, John 1, 9 to 14 particularly. So the true light, so the true light we, we see from John 1 to 5, the true light is the word who was with God, who is God, and who all things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. That's the vineyard, that's creation. Through him, all things were made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness cannot overcome it. The true light that enlightens every man was coming into the world. That's the sending of the sun. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world knew him not. This stupidity of sin, which is a darkening of the mind as well of, as of the, the powers of love. It's a darkening of truth and of love. The world knew him not, could not recognize him. He came to his own home and his own people received him not. And here is the paradox. And imagine, so we, we apply this text to the tenants in some uh, perhaps um, uh, ambitious way. But if we, we, if we read this text in the light of the parable of the tenants, we see that it is possible to become an heir. It is actually the plan of God is for the tenants to become the heirs. But to all who received him, who believed in his name, he gave power to become children of God. who were born not of blood, not of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, full of grace and truth. We have beheld his glory, glory as of the only Son of the Father. So you see, the prospect of becoming heirs, this is the heir, let's us kill him and then we'll get the inheritance. It's not by killing the heir that we get the inheritance, but we've done that already. But through the resurrection of Jesus, the heir, the only begotten Son of the Father, and our receiving the risen Son, receiving Jesus, to those who receive him, we become heir because we receive ad adoptive sonship. We become children of God. We are elevated. So the tenants are now adopted and, and, and receive the inheritance. So if you want, the ending of the parable is found there. But the key, the condition is to receive the son, is to believe in the son, to, to make that stone which is rejected the foundation of our life. That's the key, the foundation, the cornerstone on which the church is built. The church, which is the communion, the, the, the gathering of the children of God who are adopted by the Father through baptism. 
So that's another way to see the vineyard. But a third way to see uh, the vineyard is to see the vineyard as me. The vineyard is me. The vineyard is the human person. Beautifully made, willed and desired by God. None of us, not me, not you, would be around if God had not willed us to be and to be who we are. To be who we are. We know how procreation works, but we don't know how a person comes about, is made. Or rather, we believe in the Catholic Church that at conception, God immediately creates our soul, our unique personhood, who I am. No one can make who I am. God is my creator. He has decided me. And he has, if you want, planted me, made me. I am his beloved vineyard. I am his beloved. The vineyard can be understood to be the human person, but not just as a, a plant, but as one who cooperates with the creator. So there's a receptivity to the word of God. And if you want, with the faculties that I have, I am the tenant of myself. I am, if you want, the keeper of myself. Insofar as I have, again, this capacity for truth, for knowing and for loving, I can decide for myself. I can determine for myself the direction of my life. Where is this vineyard going? What sort of fruit will it produce? And like the vineyard, I, so I am in complete relation of dependency to God, my creator, and I can severe that relation through sin. I can cut myself off from the creator through sin. That's, you know, I can decide I am autonomous. I do not need God. I have nothing to do with God. And, and it is the, the principle of the tenants thinking, you know, this is ours. And of course, immediately we see a breakdown. When I start doing that, I, I move into the ways of death because I cut myself from the one from whom I receive myself, my own life, my whole being. And, and yet God will send his word and God sends his word to everyone in, in ways that he has and through us, through other people. But God speaks this year we celebrate St. Jerome. Today we celebrate the year of the words. We celebrate the God who speaks in the Catholic Church in England and Wales. A celebration of God who, who speaks now to each one of us through his word. And, and this is a celebration especially of scripture. But God speaks in many ways. One of the primary ways in which he speaks to everyone is through our, hum our conscience, which is our capacity to discern, not to decide, but to discern what is good and what is evil, because that's already a given in reality. And then from then to decide what to do about it, but to discern what we receive. So the word of God is something we receive through creation and also through revelation, through the whole of God's initiative of condescending to speak to humanity and, and that's the whole revelation to Israel, which is ours now and, and culminates in Jesus, the fullness of revelation. So we have the choice to listen, listen to another parable begins Jesus. And we have each one of us the capacity in our own little vineyard 
to either welcome or reject the Son, Jesus. And when he comes, he will comes, he, he comes, as it were, in pair. The Son, the, the, it is through the Holy Spirit that we will be able to recognize the Son and that we will be able to hear the Son and obey the Son. So there's this movement of the Holy Spirit coming into us, preparing us to receive the Son. But again, we can refuse all that. We can refuse the initiative of God. We can refuse the Word of God who speaks to us. We can decide, no, I will not follow what my conscience tells me is the truth. No, I will not follow what I hear through the church. I will not follow what I know to be right. I will not follow the voice of Jesus calling me. Each one of us has this, you know, this, which is the, the flip and perverse side of our freedom, which is not given to us so that we, so that we can choose either or in a sort of a detached way. It's, it's not a choice that is, oh, I choose to lessen or not. And, and, you know, it doesn't matter. My freedom is given to me to choose the good. My capacity for truth, my intelligence is given to me to hear and understand and, and even proclaim the truth. My capacity to choose, so my freedom, is in the same way given to me in order to recognize and, and, and choose and decide and act in pursuit of the good. It's not given to me for any other purpose. That's the purpose of my freedom. When I use it to choose what is bad, I again destroy myself. I, and, and I lose it because immediately sin becomes a kind of an enslavement whereby I lose my freedom and my capacity to recognize the truth. So this, this tendency, this whole vineyard parable can be much used for us to make a, a very... A sort of personal examination of how am I keeping my vineyard? How am I keeping myself for the Lord? How am I the recognizing God's ownership over myself? And how am I obeying and producing the fruits that I want, that He wants in my life? And one of the fundamental ways in which we produce the fruit that He wants is in giving glory to Him in the work of praising him, which is the work that we will be continuing to do for all eternity. We are made for the glory of his name. And that is not a diminishing of ourselves. That is the fulfillment of our being and, and the fulfillment of our joy. And that's what we begin to do here on earth in the liturgy. We begin that worship of God for which we are made. And this worship is the acknowledgement that God is our creator and is our savior and is our father. And, and it just pours out of us this acknowledgement of reality. And this is where we flourish and live because that's what we're made for to start off with. We're not made from independence from God. We're made for communion with God. And finally, a, th a last way in which we can understand the vineyard is to understand that the vineyard could be understood as, um, as an image of the church. Uh, the church, with, which is... So we had creation, we had the human person, and the church, which is this 
making of the Lord. It's the church is is put together, as it were, by God. It's the initiative of God. Uh, no human person makes the church. The church is made by God. It's chosen by God. It's the the chosen people gathered together by the grace of God. No one deserves to be a member of the church. It's a gift to us, a gift of grace, the gift of having been adopted into the family of God. And of course, this gift is extended and open to the whole of humanity, but it is God's doing. And in the church, we have the supreme goods, the supreme treasure God has poured. Not just he has not just done something in doing the church he has poured himself in the church it's in fact it's his body in jesus the body of christ so god is found in the church as the supreme good of the church in jesus and the treasure of the church which is god's life god himself in the sacrament he, he giving us his life through the sacraments that's the treasure that we have and to some extent of course we can understand the pope and the bishops and the priests are the tenants yes in a, in a, perhaps in a, in a specific way of the good of the church in that sense. But all of us baptized can be understood as tenants of the church as well, insofar as, as baptized member of Christ, we have received the word of God. We have received the grace of God. We have received the love of God. And these are not for us to keep and claim as our own, but these are for us to share. And so in good tenants, to produce the fruit by, by living these gifts and sharing these gifts, not by burying them. Like, you know, that's another parable. But you see, so every one of us is responsible for the treasure that is there, that is given to us, for us, but also for us to share with others. And this treasure is entrusted to us, but not ours. So no one can claim, look, my, it's my parish and it's my church and it's my blessed sacrament and it's my Bible and it's nobody else's. That, I mean, that would be silly, but sometimes we can become very possessive uh, about something, a reality that actually doesn't essentially belong to us, but of which we are ministers now, how many of us are ministers in some way of something or other in our parish? Ministers of Holy Communion, ministers of the Word, ministers by keeping the church going, ministers by looking after the liturgy and the singing. So we, we minister in some way, which means we serve. But that ministry is never a possession. It's a service as a tenant of a good that belongs to God for everyone. And so... Those gifts that we receive in the church, and precisely a particular set of gifts that we receive would be the charism through the, the Holy Spirit, they do not belong to us. They belong to the church. And we have, as good tenants, we have the responsibility to share our charism, to serve through our charism others, so that the church can be built, and not to claim them as ours, and to get prideful in them and to claim them as our inheritance because they belong to the people of God. And finally, you know, the reality of the church as it is in heaven, so the communion of the saints, this will be this wonderful sharing in the love of Christ and 
And, and you know, one, I guess if we were all to get to heaven and interview the saints there, we would hear always the same answer. You know, for example, if you, if you were to meet Mother Teresa in heaven and you would say, oh, Mother Teresa, you are so amazing and the love that you had for everybody. And she, what would she say? She would say, oh, no, that love was not mine. It was Jesus. It was the love of Jesus in me. But I, I didn't do anything. It was Jesus. Jesus is it all. You know, and every saint, and you would like, really? Of course, the saints have merits. But those merits are, are the outcome of the grace, of the love that is already given, that is already initiated by God. If you want, it's, it's the principle of the vineyard, of what you put in, you get. And the work and the effort of the landowner in building his vineyard what he gets, what he gets out of all that will be the saints of which we are called to belong. This fruit of his love, his love being poured in and being poured out, as it were, and being manifested in lives that are open to listening to his word.